Bibles to John chapter 5. Let's begin reading at uh, verse uh, 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as we dig into it, that uh, you would be pleased with the meditations of our hearts. We continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, today I'm going to be giving you some systematic theology. I've not done that in a long while. And specifically, I want to look at the deity of Jesus. Jesus was fully human, as I mentioned earlier. He had to be fully human in order to be our Savior. He also had to be fully God in order to be our Savior. But the important thing to understand is that he never dropped any of his attributes. He never ceased being God when he uh, took to himself uh, a human nature. For example, while he was here on earth, he claimed omnipresence. Omnipresence just means he is everywhere, everywhere present. In John 3, verse 13, Jesus said this, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So even while he was speaking to them, there on the earth, he said that he was in heaven. In other words, he was omnipresent. Uh, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Now, as to his humanity, he can only be one place at a time. But as to his deity, he is everywhere. As to his humanity, uh, he was not omnipotent. As to his humanity, he was so weak as a baby that his mother had to actually hold him in her hands. And yet Hebrews says that he was, as to his deity, upholding all things by the word of his power, including upholding his mother who was upholding him. I mean, there's a lot of strange things you've got to wrap your brain around when you understand the mystery of the incarnation. Hebrews 1 quotes Psalm 45 as applying to Jesus and says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So he is called God by God. That's the mystery of the Trinity. God speaking to God. And we could range all over the scriptures and uh, demonstrating the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm going to just stick to one chapter, John chapter 5. It's good sometimes to have a go-to chapter for various doctrines, and if you want two great go-to chapters on the deity of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 5 are great go-to uh, chapters. 
But before we start looking at John chapter 5, I want to demonstrate why it's important that we study doctrines like this and why I recommend that you have your kids uh, read at least some systematic theology so that they get a comprehensive introduction to the doctrines of the faith and how they're grounded uh, in the Scriptures. You might think, I mean, who denies the deity of Jesus? Well, lots of people do. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or a cult in Omaha that deny the, the deity of Jesus. But there are a lot of um, mainline uh, so-called Christian churches that have abandoned these doctrines that they used to faithfully hold to in, in, in centuries past. Uh, for example, uh, I have a copy of a sermon delivered by a pastor of a Methodist church here in town in Omaha. And in the sermon, the pastor claims that Jesus was not God and that he never claimed to be God. He makes a bunch of other heretical assertions as well. But let me just quote the ones relative to Christ's deity. This pastor said, I wish to point out now, however, that what persons come to believe about Jesus and the attributes inferred upon him may have little or nothing to do with who and what Jesus was as a historical person. I suspect that if Jesus had an opportunity to do so, he would strongly object and be greatly embarrassed that he has become God to so many. Without a doubt, Jesus was a wonderful human being. Nevertheless, we need to realize the strong probability that attributes of deity given to him, either then or since, were more a result of human need, hope, and perception than reality. The only area in which he demonstrated the power which we like to attribute to God was the great power of unconditional love. There are other areas in which we would, have, we would like to have seen him demonstrate power, and he either didn't have the power or chose not to use it. I am suggesting that he didn't have it because he was not human and not God. Excuse me, because he was human and not God. I am suggesting that the teachings about him as God come from wishful thinking on the part of followers. Now, that is a, a pastor of a supposedly Christian church right here in Omaha. He claims to be a Christian, but he's actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I have met pastors from the American Baptist Church, uh, from PCUSA, and other denominations that were once very faithful to God, but who now have deviated from sound Christian doctrine. And the irony is that when they make their declarations they are setting up a different authority than the authority that the Christianity rests upon. We rest everything upon the Bible. That's what Christianity was founded upon. Uh, they rest their authority upon something else because if you were to ask that pastor, well, how do you know that Jesus was not who the Scriptures say he was? How do you know that? Were you there 2,000 years ago? No, he wasn't there. Did you evaluate the evidence from 2,000 years ago? No. Did you evaluate the evidence in the Bible? Well, no, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. So your puny, scrawny little brain is the determiner of truth for this universe, what can and cannot exist. Uh, that is really ridiculous. You're setting your mind up as God. If your mind is the determiner of truth, what is true and what is not true, we say no. Our minds are not. It's what the Bible says. It's God's mind that determines what is and is not truth. And yet, this man and other pastors that I have uh, known over the years cage their, their sermons and their theological discussions in, in such lovely language, 
flowery language and such a theological jargon that they make it sound like they could be orthodox and they're not being do totally dogmatic on what their assertions are about, about Jesus. They will heap all kinds of praise upon Jesus. He's a wonderful teacher. Yes, we, we believe you, you should follow Jesus' teachings, and yet they deny that he was God. And I think that C.S. Lewis was right when he said to people like this pastor that the only options that Jesus left open to us are that he is God, as he said that he was, or that he's a pathological liar, because he over and over and over again said that he was God, or... He's a lunatic. Those are about the only three logical options that you have left uh, with Jesus. But he went on to say, let us not come with a patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, here is a chapter. It's a wonderful chapter that contains several contradictions of current popular heresy. And I just want to restrict myself to this chapter this morning. As I said, you can look a lot of other passages, Hebrews 1 would be one. But in John chapter 5, what are the claims of Jesus himself? Did he only claim to be a good human teacher? And the answer is clearly no. If you look at verse 18, you'll see that John was quite clear as to what Jesus claimed. It says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, that is, the unbiblical Sabbath that the Pharisees had imposed upon the land of Israel. He had not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal to God. And I want you to notice John's summary conclusion of Christ's bold, bold claims. Jesus was, quote, making himself equal to God. There is no getting around those words. If he was a good teacher but not God, he would never make affirmations like that. Okay, they would be blasphemy. But if Christ's words are true, which they most certainly are, then the pastor whose sermon I quoted is a blaspheming heretic. Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses are blaspheming heretics. They are not nice people. They are people on a warpath against God. We cannot treat them as nice people. They are heretics. And at a later time, you can look at the other witnesses and testimonies to Christ's deity I've listed under point number two, but I'm not going to cover those this morning. We're just going to look at the nine claims to deity that occur in John chapter 5. The first claim is that Jesus is equal to the Father in providence. Okay? And in verse 16, Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath. Now, was that a, a, an accurate accusation or not? And uh, I would say, yes, it is an accurate accusation. Uh, it depends on whether you're looking at the biblical Sabbath or if you're looking at the civil Sabbath that was in place in, 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 in Israel at that time. Verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he, this is John speaking, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now there are two things that John himself says that he did, and the first is that Jesus clearly broke the Sabbath. And for Christians who are bound up in legalism, this is such a wonderful, wonderfully liberating truth. Um, and so I'm going to talk about that a little bit before we look at the logical conclusion of this truth. I want to look at what it means to, for him to break the Sabbath. 
The man-made Sabbath laws in Israel had become a burden rather than a blessing, and there can be no question about the fact that Jesus broke those non-biblical civil laws related to the Sabbath, their blue laws. And if you look through the gospel, you'll see Jesus actually went out of his way to break the laws. He could have healed people on different days. It's like he deliberately chooses to heal people right on the day when the Pharisees are going to get the most irritated. He goes out of his way. He's making a point when he breaks these Sabbath laws, these civil laws. Uh, he, but don't get the idea that he ever broke the biblical Sabbath law, because Scripture is quite clear that if he broke even one moral law from the Old Testament, he could not be our Savior. He was born under the law, had to fulfill the law perfectly in order to be a substitute that could give his righteousness to, to us. So if he broke even one moral law, he could not be our substitute. So what is he breaking? Well, if you read in the Talmud, you will find hundreds of non-biblical Sabbath laws that were added to the Bible and mandated for Israel. And some of them are absolutely ridiculous, like uh, the one that says uh, you will be in deep, deep sin if you eat an egg that a chicken laid on the Sabbath. Why? Because the chicken was engaged in labor, you know, when it laid that egg. And so you cannot eat that because you'll be implicated in the chicken's Sabbath breaking. They had all kinds of laws like that that were absolutely ridiculous, and Jesus refused to submit to the legalism of the Jews. In almost every passage where Jesus violates the Sabbath of the land, he shows the Jews how the Pharisees were violating the spirit of the Old Testament commandment in some way. He was keeping the Sabbath in the way that it was always intended to be kept. Over and over, Jesus broke the law civil law, that is, in order to bring healing, in order to bring food and enjoy food, uh, in order to fellowship with others. In other words, true Sabbath-keeping is not inactivity, but it is ceasing from one kind of work to engage in another kind of work. Look at the intriguing answer that he gives in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. In effect, he's saying, if you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath, you will be accusing God of breaking his own Sabbath. Among other things, uh, Christ shows them that they have not been imitating God's Sabbath at all because God worked on the Sabbath. Okay? The Sabbath was not absence from activity where they sit on their duffs or sleep all day or do nothing all day and are not involved in ministry. Anybody who keeps the Sabbath knows it takes work to be involved. I mean, take a look at Joel. He works, you know, when he's worshiping, putting energy into the singing, you know. It takes work to worship the way God wants us to worship. It takes work to pray as we are intended to pray. It takes work to minister to people in a nursing home. Uh, it takes work uh, to engage in the kind of fellowship uh, and reading and other things that God says are good Sabbath activity. So instead of inactivity, what is happening on Sunday is we're trading in the work of dominion for the work of worship and fellowship and ministry. And it's simply imitating God who traded in one kind of work, the work of creating things, for another kind of work, the work of bringing life and healing and fellowship uh, with his people and providence in his people. Okay? His providence never ceased. Now, all of this could make for an interesting discussion on what uh, proper Sabbath observance looks like. That's not what I'm going to get into this morning. I think you're getting some hints of where I'm going on this. 
But I do want you to notice the implications of Christ's words as to who he is. He is claiming that just as the Father has been engaged in providence, the sustaining of life, providence from Genesis 2 until the present, he, the Son, has been involved in the same work as the Father. Ever since the sixth day of creation, both Father and Son have been working the works of providence. He was equal with the Father in providence. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. My Father has been working until now. I have been working. That's his explanation of why he can do these things that he is doing on the Sabbath and be fully fulfilling the Sabbath law of the Old Testament. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, the Jews caught the full implications of what Christ was saying, and they tried to kill him not only because of their disagreement with his ethics of Sabbath-keeping, but also for claiming to be God, for engaging with the Father in 4,000 years of working up until that time. So that's Christ's first claim. His work is coordinate with the Father. He is equal to the Father in providence or in working. That's a fantastic claim to deity. The second claim is that he is equal to the Father as to his nature. Uh, look at the second clause in verse 18. The Jews there tried to kill him because, last clause, he also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, why would the Jews, including John, because that's John's conclusion as well, why would the Jews and the Apostle John immediately jump to the conclusion that making God his Father was making Jesus equal with God? How does that follow? Well, let me explain it uh, this way. Finite creatures beget finite creatures. Cows beget cows, horses beget horses, chickens beget chickens. But God, the infinite God, begets infinite God. Now, let's make a distinction here because uh, you might be confused at this point and say, yeah, but God's our Father too. That does not make us God. Uh, how does this follow? Well, we are not children of God in the same sense that He is the Son of God. Six times the New Testament calls Jesus the only begotten Son of God or uniquely begotten is the way some translate it, but I like only begotten uh, Son of God, mono. Ganes, the only begotten. Four times the Gospel of John calls him the only begotten Son of God. So we are not begotten as Christ was. We are adopted. We are not natural sons. We don't have the same nature as God the Father. So there is a difference between being a begotten son and being an adopted son. God our Father uh, treats us as His children because of our relationship to Christ. We're united to Christ, His Son, and through Christ we can have this title of children of God, but it's in Christ. And the Greek here in verse 18 indicates that Christ was claiming God as his own father by nature. One commentator says, the Greek undoubtedly might be translated more clearly, said that God was his own particular father. Now the Greek word is idios. It's the, the word we get idiosyncrasy from, that which is absolutely unique to an individual, to a person. And his own and alone father would be another way of saying it, but it's why the, the Jews saw that he was claiming to be equal with God. If Jesus is a son by nature and not by adoption, he has to be God. Like begets like. Now you couple that with his claim that he's been working for the last 4,000 years right alongside of the father, 
and uh, you've got a conclusion that's inescapable. Now, unfortunately, the Jehovah's Witnesses do try to escape from this conclusion. They try to short-circuit this argument by saying that a son is always younger than a father, and therefore he could not have been co-eternal with the father, and therefore he does not have the attribute of eternality, and therefore he is not equal in nature with the Father. Now, that's a very clever argument. There's a lot of Christians are stymied by that. Okay, yeah, son does seem like he's younger than a father, so what do we, uh, do, what do, we do with that? Well, um, there are two things I would point out. First, the statement uh, that's connected with that is crystal clear that John himself says that he is equal. He makes himself equal with God the Father, Okay. So you can't get around that. By itself, that ought to disqualify what they're saying. But secondly, there's the logical fallacy in their, their reasoning. The fallacy is that they're applying finite human categories to describe eternal divine categories. Of course, our sons are younger than us because we are finite creatures who have a beginning, right? Uh, and it is of our nature to beget finite younger creatures. It is of our very nature to be bounded by time sequences and to not be eternal. Creatures cannot escape the boundaries of time. God is above time. He experiences the past, the present, the future all at the same time. Well, even saying the same time is using uh, a time category, right? But he's above time. Uh, he's not bounded by time. And so it's, it's a totally different uh, uh, situation. And so the scripture calls God the Father, calls God the eternal Father. The eternal Father. Now that phrase means there never was a time when he was not a father. Now think about the logic of that. If there was never a time when he was not a father, there was never a time in which he did not have a son. Okay? Um, that means um, logically that an infinite God who has no beginning is eternally begetting an infinite son who has no begetting. Like begets like. Now, don't worry if you can't fully grasp that. Uh, it's very, very difficult to even grasp the concept of how anything could be outside of time uh, and, and not being in a sequence of events. But just realize those two things. John himself said Jesus was making himself equal with God, and secondly, like begets like. Uh, horses beget horses, and God begets God. And that much the Jews understood. Now the third claim of Jesus is that he is so one with the Father in essence that it would be absolutely impossible for him to do anything independently of his Father. Now that by itself shows that uh, there are, even though there are two persons, they are not two gods. They are one in essence. Take a look at verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. The Father cannot do anything uh, without the Father doing it. The Father cannot do anything without the Son doing it. Now, if there were two gods, that would make no sense. And if there was only one person and one God, that would not make any sense. The Son is distinct from Father as to personhood, but is one with God as to Godhood. Now, you're having to put your thinking caps on here, aren't you? Because this is, this is profound stuff. This is amazing stuff that the early church worked through. But to me, this is an awesome proof. There is not a thing that the Father does that the Son does not also do. And let's check this out. The Father fills everything in this universe. 
And so we would expect that the Son, if he is equal in nature, would fill the universe as well. And that's exactly what the Scripture says. Ephesians 1.23 speaks of Christ who fills all in all. Uh, the Father created the worlds out of nothing, and John chapter 1 tells us that there was not a thing that was created in this universe that was not created by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a oneness of essence. Since all three persons of the Godhead are one indivisible essence, it's impossible for one to be doing something without the other. And that is why creation is attributed to all three persons. Same is true of the resurrection. Who raised Jesus from the dead? People say, well, the Father did. Well, that's true, he did, but you know, the scripture says Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Let me read you a couple of verses. John 2, 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he goes on to explain, he's talking about the temple of his body. In three days I will raise it up. Jesus raised up his own body. John 10, verse 17, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. But Romans 1, 8, verse 11 says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the, the, the grave. And Galatians 1, 1 says that the Father raised Jesus from the grave. Which one is true? Well, they're all true, right? They work in concert because they are one in essence. Let me read you some comments on John 5, 19 from some famous ancient uh, writers. Uh, this was a key, key verse in the Trinitarian debate. Now, they ranged all over the scriptures. They were, and they didn't have concordances. They didn't have computers to figure these things out. They just memorized and knew the scriptures. It's just amazing when you read these church fathers. But Augustine said, Our Lord does not say, Whatsoever the Father doeth, the Son does other things like them, but the very same things. If the Son doeth the same things and in like manner... Now let the Jew be silenced, the Christian believe, the heretic be convinced, the Son is equal with the Father. Uh, another commentator remarked, the words, what things soever, are without limit. All that the Father does, the Son likewise does. This is as high an assertion as possible of his being equal with God. If one does all that another does or can do, then there is proof of equality. If the Son does all that the Father does, then like Him, He must be almighty, omniscient, all-present, and infinite in every perfection, or in other words, He must be God. Another ancient writer by the name of Hilary says, Christ is the Son because He does nothing of Himself. He is God because whatsoever things the Father doeth, He doeth the same. They are one because they are equal in honor. He is not the Father because He is sent. In other words, the distinctions between Father and, and, and Son are true, but they are one in essence, one Godhead. And if this verse is true, then all of the other points follow as well. The other verses are true as well. Point D, Christ must be equal in knowing, even though the Son comes from the Father and receives every bit of knowledge that He has from the Father, He still must be equal in knowledge or there would be a division in the Godhead. Well, that's exactly what we find. Verse 20, for example, says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, this verse is emphasizing the distinctions, not the oneness, but even there, the hint of the oneness is quite strong. Since the Father begets the Son and the Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son, uh, there is a, an order in the, in, the, in, in the Trinity, 
uh, from father to son to spirit. But notice that even while emphasizing the differences between the persons in the way in which they know, it says that the father shows him all things that he himself does. Since the father is omniscient, Christ would have to be omniscient to know all things. And indeed, the Bible says that he is. It says, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If God were to show a mere man all things, our minds could not contain them. Okay, it would just be impossible to contain it. But the mind of Christ contains all things, all things. And thus Colossians 2.3 says, In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is not a single thought in the Father's mind that is not also in Christ. From eternity past, the Father showed the Son his plan, and throughout eternity there is going to be ongoing communication between them. By the way, this is one of the proofs that Francis Schaeffer gives of the Trinity. It is that all of the attributes are attributes that communicate. They communicate with each other. For example, love, agape love, is a love that's always outgoing. The Father loves somebody else. It's not a self-love. Agape love is self-giving love. Well, who did he love before there were humans or angels? In an Islamic kind of a Godhead, there would be nobody to love. But in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of the attributes are that way. They communicate uh, with, uh, with, with each other. And... I know this is very hard to wrap our brains around, so sometimes illustrations are helpful. And one of the best illustrations that I have heard was written by Jonathan Edwards, trying to show how it's possible for Christ to derive everything from the Father, yet be equal in nature to the Father and one essence with the Father. How in the world can that work? So he said, think of it this way. God the Father knows everything. Nobody denies that. So let's draw a circle and pretend that this circle contains all the knowledge that God the Father has. Now, can a person be self-reflective? Can he think about his own thoughts? Yes. And God is a person. He can think about his own thoughts. And so those thoughts about your own thoughts would be a second circle out here. Are you following along? So if there's another circle that represents all of our self-reflective, you know, I was thinking this and I was thinking that. So if that second circle represents all of the self-reflective thoughts that, um, that they had, if you have an omniscient self-reflection about your own thoughts, that would mean that 100% of the self-reflective thoughts, in other words, the thoughts in the second circle, would be identical to the thoughts in the first circle, right? Identical. The only difference would be that they are a perfect reflection of the first circle. Well, if it's possible for us to be self-reflective in our own thoughts, there's no reason to logically deny that statement that everything the Father knows, the first circle, the Son knows, the second circle. But though those two circles contain exactly the same thoughts, they are in relationship to each other. They are reflective of each other. And the relationship between the two, Jonathan Edwards says, uh, could be likened to the Holy Spirit, the energizing force between that relationship of the two, of the two circles. Now, it's only an illustration. It has its, uh, it has its limits. But I, I found uh, his analogy to be very helpful in understanding how the Trinity can be one God and yet be three 
persons who share exactly the same attributes. Now, Jesus is equal not only in knowing, but also in specific acts of doing. Uh, first, the resurrection is mentioned in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, that verse is indicating that every person that, that the Father raises from the grave, Jesus raises from the grave. Every person that the Father gives life to, Jesus gives life to. And it's one of many verses indicating that there's a total unity of will between Father and Son. Now, all that the Father wills, the Son also wills to do. Verse 22 shows him equal in judging. For as the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now, uh, earlier and later, he does indicate that the Father judges in a sense. He's involved in judgment because he gives judgment to the Son, but there's a distinction in the way that they are involved. The Father has the plan. The Son executes the plan. That was true of creation. The Father had the plan of creation. The Son spoke the creation into existence, and the Spirit energizes the creation. There are distinctions, but all are involved. But again, there's a unity of purpose and will and power. And so going on to point G, verse 23 shows them to be equal in honor, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoa, man, I don't know how people can get around statements like that. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. Can you see why C.S. Lewis says that it's absolutely ludicrous to call Jesus a good moral teacher and deny that he is God? If Jesus was not God, it would have been reprehensible, evil of him, to make claims that he was God. Okay, so the options are Lord, liar, or lunatic. People cannot honestly say that he's a nice man then ignore his claims to being God and demanding the same honor that the Father receives. You're either for him or you're against him. But what an incredible passage to show that Jesus is part of the Godhead, equal in honor. Now, in verses 24 through 25, we see the Son equal with the Father in giving justification and a new lease on life to His people. Most assuredly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And then he talks about the future resurrection. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, whether you're talking about conversion or you're talking about future resurrection, Christ's Word carries all the power of God's Word because it is God's Word. He is God's Word. God spoke the worlds into existence, but how did He do it? It was through God the Son. He said, let there be, and there was light. And John 1 says that the Son was that powerful Word that went out. By the way, Jews prior to the time of Christ, they believed in the Trinity. I've read documents written by Jews uh, that date back to the Babylonian exile that look at Genesis chapter 1. I've got three different commentaries from ancient Jews that speak of, uh, that speak of uh, Elohim, that'd be the, the Father, and the Word, and the Spirit, and they're all Jehovah, and they're talking to each other, okay? Uh, they, they believed in the Trinity uh, way, way back then. But anyway, uh, let's see, where did I leave off here? Um, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, so that implies he's a different person. If he's with God, there's some distinction, 
And the Word was God. So there is the oneness of essence. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. It's through Christ that our spirit is resurrected to life. The moment our bodies hear the Word of Christ, they're going to be raised from the dead. Christ is equal with the Father in having the power of conversion, justification, entrance into God's kingdom, resurrection. And then finally in verse 26, Christ says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Both the Father and the Son are the source of all life. Okay, That could not be true if there were two gods or if Jesus was not God. Here it says they are equally the source of all life. As the Father, so the Son, okay? which means that they are self-existent. Now, what difference does all this that we've gone through make in our lives? It makes a huge uh, difference. As I mentioned earlier, unless he was God, he could not represent God to us. He could not be a mediator for God. Unless he was man, he could not represent us to God, be a mediator for man. He had to be fully God and man to be Savior, and our whole salvation rests upon this doctrine. This is why we must fight for this doctrine. This is why the early church fought vigorously for this doctrine. Second, it makes a difference in our confidence in approaching God in prayer. Now, some in church history, some uh, heretics have treated God as very distant, so distant that you can't even pray to him. In fact, he's a wrathful God. He's a, a fearful God. And we need to approach Jesus because Jesus is so much uh, more tender and compassionate and loving, and he'll convince uh, God the Father to let up on us a little bit and not to be, you know, twisting our arms so much. It, it made that kind of a difference. And later on in church history, people were saying, man, we can't even go to Jesus because he's so far distant, so let's go to Mary because she's compassionate. And then some people thought, wow, Mary's too busy to deal with a guy like me. Maybe I'll go to my relatives and maybe they can speak to Mary. And you got all of this uh, nonsense that was happening. Uh, amongst some people in the Middle Ages. But think about this. The Father was the one who sent the Son in the first place, wasn't he? John 3, 16. He so loved the world that he sent his Son. He did it out of love. Father and Son are united in judgment. They are united in salvation. They are united in wrath. They have exactly the same wrath. And we can approach the Father with full confidence and boldness, knowing that he is one in nature and essence with the Father. Third, this doctrine affects many other doctrines, and I won't get into it with you. We can maybe discuss it later, but I'll just give you one example. You cannot separate the purposes of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Four-point Calvinists do exactly that. In order to maintain four-point Calvinists, uh, in France, uh, they were followers of uh, Amaro. Uh, they're called Amarildians. Uh, they held that the Father's will was different than the Son's will in terms of the purpose of who would be saved by the atonement. So they denied a particular redemption or limited atonement. They believed that one wills to save only the elect, that would be the Father, and the other wills to save all people, that would be Jesus. Okay? And I want you to look at verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And what is true in general is true of salvation as a whole. Take a look at verses 37 through 40 of chapter 6. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, so here the Father's will and Christ's will are the same, and I think it's one of the fatal flaws of Amarildianism. There's, there's other fatal flaws too, besides the fact that it's utterly illogical. But finally, we should just desire to know the truth about God. God wants us to know the truth, and He is slandered when we believe falsehoods about Him. So that by itself ought to motivate us to say, Lord, we want to know the, the right things about You. We want to understand doctrine. In the next section of Scripture, Jesus appeals to seven witnesses who also testify to the truth of His claims to deity. We're not going to go over those. But you study those testimonies, and you study the scope of Scripture, and it just blows you away when you consider the doctrine of Christology and the doctrine of the Trinity. It makes me want to worship. I look at these things, and it's so far beyond my ken. I want to fall down and, and worship. We have an awesome Savior, a Savior worth trusting. And if you have not yet put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I urge you to do so today. Trust Him to be your Savior today, or it's guaranteed you will face Him as your judge in the future. And He will exercise the same wrath against you that the Father and the Spirit will exercise. And so this chapter has bold claims, claims of either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of the universe. May each one of us warmly embrace Him as Doubting Thomas did when he said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Amen. Father, we thank you for insights into your great nature and character. And we want to know more about you. We want to delight in systematic theology. Read it, study it, but make it transform our hearts as well. Father, give to us uh, such a deep love for you as you truly exist that we would never be suckered in by uh, false doctrine, false theologies. And I pray that these doctrines would grip our lives and transform them. Uh, we worship you. We bless you. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.